welcome to Vincent Jason Save the Nation. I'm Jason Nichols. Uh, and we're happy to be here with you once again on a Monday morning uh, to bring to you the news and some good discussion. And I'm here with my colleague, Vince Collides. Vince, what do you got for us today? Jason Nichols, thank you, sir. You know, um, you see Joe Biden this week, according to Politico, set to talk on Wednesday about how his administration is looking to confront the rise in violent crime in the United States. We haven't heard a ton from Joe Biden on this subject. Uh, and on Wednesday, it's a little ambiguous right now what that means, what he's going to say, but that it looks like for the first time in his administration, he's going to place some emphasis on the rise in crime in the country. And this comes after a weekend where we saw uh, a bunch of mass shootings. This is uh, this is now several weekends in a row that that's occurred. Um, and for instance, CNN headline here, seven killed, more than 40 injured in 10 different mass shootings across the United States over the weekend. And that's typically where they, they define a mass shooting is when four or more people are injured. That's the way CNN does it. By the way, when you talk about mass shootings, there actually are a variety of definitions that people use. So it's hard to actually sometimes put all that data together. But CNN says four or more people injured in a mass shooting in a, in a shooting is a mass shooting. And as a result, they say there were 10 mass shootings across the U.S. over the weekend. Jason, it's a part of a, a, a trend, a troubling trend, the kind of trend that's obviously now caught the attention of the White House. What do you what do you think of this rise in violence? What might be causing it and what could Biden actually do to address it? Well, first of all, uh, let's talk a little bit about the political implications of this. I think this is a risky uh, topic for Joe Biden right now. He's already kind of uh, kind of rubbing the progressive end of the Democratic Party the wrong way. Uh, but he's being Joe Biden. And we know Joe Biden tries to tackle violent crime. He is part of, you know, he was the author of probably the most controversial uh, attempt to curb violent crime in modern history with the 1994 Violent Crime uh, Control and Prevention Act, uh, aka the 94 Crime Bill. Um, so I think that this has some political risks, but Joe Biden promised to be Joe Biden. Pro Joe Biden did not promise to be Bernie Sanders when he got into office. And so right. I, I think he's doing what he said he was going to do. I've always said and made sure that people understand that Joe Biden is much closer to Joe Manchin than he is to uh, Elizabeth Warren or to uh marky or to aoc uh he's much more in the on the moderate to conservative end of the democratic party and i think that this is something that he's going to tackle that i think is is kind of on brand for him where some of the things that he's done have not been so on brand um i think the rise in, in violent crime that we're seeing uh which we've been seeing since the beginning of the pandemic um, honestly, because, you know, we've seen, we saw more shootings, more violence in 2020 than we had seen, uh, you know, for the first two years of the, of the Trump administration. And when we look at violent crime overall, violent crime has been falling, uh, for more than 25 years. If you go back to 1993, between 1993 and 2019, violent crime dropped 49%. I mean, it was a precipitous drop in violent crime, but Americans 
uh, you know, I was reading up on this. <clears throat> Americans always perceive that crime is rising. That's that's the funny thing when you look at uh, like Pew Research uh, has done some research that says Americans always perceive crime as a problem and mm -hmm. they always perceive that it's rising even when it's doing a precipitous drop. Um, but I think what we have seen in the last year and a half is unusual circumstances, people who were frustrated, people who were for a long time out of work. Uh, and we know that those kinds of situations uh, generally lead to violent crime. And so, so yeah, uh, no, no, it's good. I, I, um, you know, I know, for instance, on the issue of like the media and sort of distorting people's sense of reality, I agree that happens a lot. Um, but this is different this time for sure. There's definitely a, a meaningful rise in particular sort of the worst types of violent crime, uh, homicide among them. Uh, and like in the DC area where we are right now, 2020 was the highest in 16 years for homicides. And in 2021, as of right now, is on track to be even deadlier given the number of homicides we've seen so far this year in the district. And, you know, one other type of violent crime that that we've seen, especially in the district, and just because we live so close to it, I, at least I'm more familiar with it, is um, carjackings. There have been these these carjackings that have overtaken areas of D.C. And when I say overtaken, what I mean is like their, their rise is very noticeable uh, in D.C. and in the surrounding suburbs around D.C. Montgomery County, Maryland is, is experiencing a pretty dramatic rise in carjackings. And one of the interesting features of these carjackings are that it's not the way that, you know, we used to think about carjackings, right? Like somebody would steal a car and then take it to some unscrupulous chop shop and then sell off the parts. And there would be some sort of financial motive behind stealing the car. In fact, right now, used cars are like literally are actually going for good money right now because they're hard to find given the how upset the automotive market is. But that's not actually the motivating factor, apparently, behind the carjackings we're seeing in the D.C. area and the D.C. suburbs. It's young people that are stealing these cars under the age of 16 in, in D.C. and Montgomery County, for instance, in Maryland. You've got to be 16 and a half to even get a driver's license. You've got people who are 16 and under stealing vehicles and then just joyriding with them. Like they're, they're actually there is no goal other than just to sort of get a thrill out of it. This and, isn't really new, though, because there was always, I don't know if you remember, the, the D.C. media was big on this maybe five years ago when they would talk about kitty car thieves. That's That was the, yeah. the term that they put out there. And, you know, other parts of the country have had this for a long time, uh, like New Jersey. It was famous for, you know, car theft. I also think that car theft is very different than carjacking. You know, carjacking is I put a gun or a, a knife or some sort of weapon tell you to get out of your car. Mm -hmm. That's a carjacking. Yes. You you leave your car, your keys in the car while you go to 7-Eleven and I just walk, run up, you know, jump in and drive off with your car and joyride with it and leave it, you know, in, you know, on Branch Avenue. That's not a carjacking. That's a car theft. You know what I mean? Yeah. And, you know, you got to be a little more responsible to leave your keys in the car, which is oftentimes how this happens. This is what police were, were warning at least a couple of years ago, that a lot of times people were jumping in. These kids were jumping in the car because right. people left the keys in. They don't know how to break a steering column. No, you know, 15 year olds generally. That's right. 
are, don't know how to break a steering column and do all those. And newer things. cars and newer cars are actually really hard to hotwire relative yeah. to the cars that that people used to do that to. No, you're right. It's typically, yeah, it's either a carjacking or a car, a car theft to use your definition. Um, but like, for instance, in D.C., the most famous one recently was the Uber East driver, Mohammed Anwar, who is on a street in D.C., picks up these girls, teenagers, both of them. Um, and then they carjack him with a taser. They have a, they have a taser on hand. Right. They they steal the car from him. He holds on for dear life to the outside of the A-frame and uh, ends up getting killed in that carjacking. And the girls are going to serve no time. The one girl, the, I think 15 years old, she's going to she is serving time. But she, when I say no time, I mean, relative to to a homicide, um, she's going to be out when she's 21 years old given uh, the way that it works for juveniles in D.C. and the way that the D.C. system is handling it. Um, it's just I look at things like that and I look at sort of the rise in all this violent crime. And I, I think in order to obviously fix it, because I, I assume most people want to fix it, kind of regardless of what your what your politics are, like the last thing you want in your neighborhood is more murders and carjackings and car thefts. Um, we got to get to the bottom of it. and. I think, I mean, I think you mentioned it a moment ago, it's like, yes, there are more people like coming out of their hidey holes after all, like the pandemic and they're re-engaging, things like that. But there's something deeply like nihilistic about all of this. Like there's sort of like a nothing matters attitude, it feels like that kind of, that goes into some of this, especially stealing cars for joyrides. And I don't really know how you get at that other than sort of, like sort of strong moral foundations that prevent people from doing it in the first place. Oh, no, I, I absolutely agree with that. Um, the question is how you impart that up, upon people. Um, <clears throat> how, you, how do you give people a strong moral foundation? And the thing that we know that stops crime, and, you know, I, I, I've heard a lot of people who have argued about you know, there, there's somebody in the comments right now, you know what I mean, who's like, you know, it's this, the left wants to defund the police while there are carjackings in D.C. Well, mind you, by the, by the way, um, in much of D.C., you and I spend a lot of time in D.C. D.C. does not feel like a war zone. You know what I mean? It, even with this slight uptick in violent crime and with the things that are going on, uh, generally, in most parts of D.C., you do not feel in danger. Um, so I don't want to give off the wrong impression. But the other thing is that in order to, to stop crime, it's not police presence that does it. Uh, it's not policing that does it. What really does it is when you have uh, equitable education um, and, you know, education equity and and you know a work infrastructure and I, i'm citing some of the research from my colleague um, who's at the brookings institute dr rayshawn ray who does a lot of work on policing and you know he comes from a police family and i think we should interview him at some point if he'd be willing to do it uh but i think he's he's you know clear that police and he's somebody who's, who's i would say is pro-police policing doesn't drop crime there's no evidence of that. And there's certainly no evidence that funding them heavily drops crime. What does drop crime is people have jobs and people have good education. Those things make crime go down. That's 
literally social science research going back 60, 70 years. So um, I would argue that the way to do this is to improve the education in DC, improve the education. Some of this is gonna happen, like we said, because of the pandemic, unfortunately. Um, but we need to invest in those areas, invest in our work infrastructure and in our infrastructure uh, in general, which will bring more jobs. Uh, and that will be something that will help us to drop crime throughout so th uh, the country. There's a, there is a correlation between um, when police pull back on policing and the rise in crime. That's measurable. Um, in Baltimore, after the Freddie Gray riots, and also uh, in Chicago, there was a, another young man who was shot by police. I forget his name. Laquan uh, but McDonald, the, probably. Was it Laquan McDonald? It might have been after Laquan McDonald's death that there was a pullback on policing, and there was a corollary rise in violent crime, both in Chicago and in Baltimore. Um, and so the effects of policing can be felt when they're absent, for yeah, sure. I that, I, oh, sorry, go ahead. Yeah, I was just, and, and there are places like, you know, in and around Minneapolis, uh, where this occurred in the wake of George Floyd's death. Uh, and we've seen, we've seen this happen in other cities as well, where basically where police either pull back because of uh, the political atmosphere that, that surrounds policing, or where police are actively defunded and there are fewer cops actually on the streets, there is a, a meaningful rise in crime. Neighborhoods do become more unsafe when you don't have uh, policing going on in the community, when response times go up, when they go way up because there are just not enough cops actually responding uh, to emergency calls. Um, that, that's bad for communities. And there is a relationship, I would think. Don't you think? Well, I, well first of all, the, the examples that you give are um are anecdotal but i will say this i do think that you know when police make it clear that there's a rate of attrition you know and i think with i i know you know i live pretty close to the baltimore area the police made it clear to the community yeah we're we're not really we're not really working right now you know what i mean like it was kind of like you know a way of of kind of signaling for people in that community that it was going to be free reign. And um, when you take a community that's already frustrated, um, they were frustrated not only from their treatment by police, but they're also frustrated by the lack of economic opportunity. Um, and one of the reasons that they don't have economic opportunity is because of, you know, Baltimore is a blue collar city. Uh, much like some of the other cities that you named, a little different than D.C., which is not really a blue-collar city. But you look at right. these blue-collar blue cities, Baltimore, Detroit, New Orleans, where you have uh, a lot of violence, a lot of it comes down to the fact that, you know, post-deindustrialization, there are no jobs. And if you don't have jobs, you know, and you don't have education to get those, the new sector jobs, that's when you get, you know, these violent crimes. So it comes back to my original point. I think one of the issues in Chicago, bringing up Chicago is a little difficult because there are so many crimes being committed by the police in Chicago. And the police in Chicago were incredibly ineffective in solving crimes. So murders and things like that, generally, if, you, if Chicago wants to fix something, 
you know, it's not just, hey, let's give the police more money, you know, let's give them more resources when they're not proving to be effective with the resources that they have. So, you know, uh, I, I do think that I'm not someone who says, you know, abolish the police because I've had these right. conversations with people in the, in, you know, in academic spaces where I'm like, you know, there's, there are people who are academic theorists who oftentimes are like, abolish this, abolish that, abolish police, abolish uh, prisons. You know, there's a big prison ab abolitionist movement in a lot of the circles that I'm in. Right. And my question to them is always, okay, so then what? And then it's always a, like, you know, with a whole bunch of jargon about, well, you know, when we do that, we're going to do this and blah, 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 blah. We're going to, you know, and, and it's more about like, uh, well, we need to imagine and we need to be creative. <laughs> and I'm like, I get that. Right. But you don't have a plan for those communities. You know what I mean? If you had a plan, I might be on board. Yeah, you know, I'm open to new ideas because honestly, policing in a city like Chicago has not worked for people in Inglewood, people in Lawndale. They are not being helped by the police. You know, like it, it's literally you have a chance. I have to look up the statistics again. Yeah, the the you know overall nationwide, you have a 39 percent chance of getting away with the murder. You know. But I believe in Chicago, you had something like a 70% chance of getting away with the murder. I, I have to go back and look at those statistics. I'll, right. I'll look it up while you're talking. Please. So let me, well, let me, can I ask you a question? I, you got me thinking about a lot of things. One is, um, you know, you pointed to Joe Biden's support for the 1994 crime bill and, you know, and being such a primary, a primary driving force behind that bill. And yeah. the end result was that it imprisoned a lot of people, especially a lot of black people. And that was kind of was something that would come up in the campaign and and, uh, you know, Biden would try and downplay it. Kamala Harris had her own kind of thing going on that she that was, she was trying to downplay regarding those issues. Um, but then you also cited a statistic that from 1993 until now, violent crime has gone down a lot. And I couldn't help but notice the timeline that you cited in both instances, you know, the 94 crime bill. And sure. from 1993 until now, crime goes down. And one of the things I have seen among people who defend the 1994 crime bill is, well, look at the numbers. Look at the numbers in, that you just cited, for example. Uh, is there any relationship between the 94 crime bill and the numbers we now have in America with the precipitous drop in violent crime from that time? Um, no. And the reason I'll say that is, number one, uh, policing, this this is what, what I think is disingenuous by you know, during the campaign, for example, Trump, you know, said, oh, there's, you know, Joe Biden is pro-violent crime. You're going to get all this crime. Again, more fear mongering. And then Biden said, well, crime dropped under the Obama administration, which is true, but that's not necessarily due to anything Obama did. That was the fact that is that when we talk about crime, it's largely local, you know? So it's your local officials that affect the crime in your community. Now we can talk about job infrastructure and, and, and education equity. Education equity oftentimes is local as well. Job infrastructure can be local, but also can be affected by federal, you know, efforts. Um, 
But when we look at the 94 crime bill, that was a federal bill. And when we look at the, the rise in people who were incarcerated, and I know mm -hmm. that, you know, there were lots of us who were upset about that. I still think that that bill is very misunderstood by the general public. Everybody, 94 crime bill, 94 crime bill. What really, if you want to look at a federal bill that really led to mass incarceration, it was not the 94 crime bill. It was the 1986 Anti-Drug Abuse Act. The War on Drugs. Yeah, that from, from Reagan. That's what, which by the way, Joe Biden voted for. Yeah. That so, really I, spiked, uh, you know, uh, incarceration. incarceration. And right. even still, all of that is on the federal level. Most people are incarcerated. I don't think I've known anyone in my entire life who has ever been in the federal system. And that's being honest, like known well, anyway. I, I've met right. known like friends and family. Never known anybody. Everybody I know has, has been in the state system. Yeah. You know? Let me ask you about something I heard, John. You know John McCorder, the linguist from Columbia University? Sure, yeah. So he, um, he said something recently that was interesting to me. He was kind of reliving the 1986. He's, he's a big fan of uh, ending the war on drugs. He thinks that that's a critical uh, component to fixing uh, the lives of Black Americans. Um, and... He said he, he pointed back at it and he goes, you know, a lot of people forget that when that was getting going, especially in the 1980s, um, that it wasn't just like, you know, a couple of white politicians were all pushing for this, like kind of like a, sort of like a tough on crime attitude from Washington. And therefore, we're going to pass this this uh, legislation. He said there were a lot of black leaders Absolutely. who were at the forefront of pushing for that because they were looking at what was happening in. Uh, it's predominantly black communities and saying, you know, the drugs have grown so out of control that they were looking for some way through the through the government to redress that. Um, you fact. you obviously you know a lot about this. Yeah. Is is that your understanding, too? And do you feel like that ever gets lost in our conversations about this? No, that, that's a fact. <laughs> There's no question about it. I, and I think. Um, you know. Uh, some of those leaders, the, the few that still remain, um, are realizing that that was a bad approach. Right. And I also think that research on, again, the effects of, of policing, um, I think a lot of that was incomplete at the time. And so people were working on the information that they had. I mean, think of some of the things that I would say have been disproven ever since, like broken windows policing, you know, like, people all of it all the time and there are a lot of myths that have been created like the myth around Rudy Giuliani and he's the person who really implemented broken windows policing and that's what really dropped crime but as I said crime dropped across the country across the board around the time that he took office and crime was dropping under the last few years of, day of Mayor Dinkins so it wasn't broken windows policing that actually did this what what you could argue for uh, Mr. Giuliani was the fact that he gained the confidence of the NYPD. They liked him, not the communities, not the people in those communities. And it didn't necessarily, you know, crime was going down across the entire country. But for some reason, he became America's mayor for putting, you know, in a policy that some cities followed and others didn't. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, I would say that there was some misunderstanding about 
how to solve crime during that era. And there were a lot of black leaders who saw what was happening in their communities. I, I can tell you, um, the 1980s, I was, you know, obviously really young, but in the 1980s, I would go to my, my grandmother's, you know, house right. um, in Harlem in, in New York. And, you know, it was a vibrant working class community. I'm from Spanish Harlem, which is different than, you know, West Harlem, which is, you know, Black Harlem. But in Spanish Harlem, it was a vibrant working class community. One poor, one the South Bronx, one anything like that. Um, some people owned their homes, some people didn't. Um, but when the crack era started, like it was like overnight, the whole community changed. Mm. Uh, there was a lot of violence. And then after the violence, it was a ghost town. You know what I mean? Like it just wasn't, it didn't have the same vibrancy, which again, opened the door to gentrification and all the things. My grandmother's block has so many white people on it now. As a kid, I never saw a white person. If it was a white person, it was a light-skinned Puerto Rican. You know what yeah. I mean? Like, yeah. you never saw white people. Did that Did that affect your view on drugs? Um, how so? I'm just curious. I mean, if you grew up in a, in a world like that, where you see, or at least you hear from your family, this 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 idea that like, you know, things became a ghost town. This is your this is you accounting your own experience, yeah. right? Or you, where right. it became a ghost town yeah. in Spanish Harlem after crack arrives. Um, you know, there are there are some people on, I guess, the, the left and then sort of the libertarian right who are who are like for full legalization for drugs. Um, who are just like, look, live and let live, let people do their thing. And then some of them take it so far as like, well, legalize it so that way drugs aren't sold on the black market. You can have government regulation involved and then you can collect tax revenue from it. You could have storefronts where people can actually purchase drugs from instead of sort of the violent black market environments that they were engaged in, in the first place. Um, do, do you have, have you, do you have a clear view on this? Do you, yes. do you feel like, do you feel like you share the view of, of like, um, you know, just complete, let's just go full legalization. Is that your view or is it different um, because of your experience? So I certainly think, and because of my experience. Yeah. Um, so I, I remember I was, I think 14. The first time a grown woman came up to me and asked me for crack cocaine. Um, and you know, and, and generally I'm from the suburbs, you know, this is, this is when I was visiting family. So I, sure. I, I was not accustomed to that. You know what I mean? So you're just standing outside somewhere and a woman comes up to you and asks yeah, you. I, I was standing, one of my friends went inside a, a, a bodega, you know, and I'm kind of just standing posted up and right. a woman came up to me and she asked me if I had any rock. Um, and the, the thing to me is, is this. I realized that woman's desperation. Right. She was not a criminal. You know what I mean? She wasn't carrying guns and knives. And, and even if she did commit crimes, they were out of desperation. That woman probably had kids. She probably had a family. She probably loved her family. But she got caught up in something that, you know, again, and one of the biggest, you know, uh, and, and I, I've said this, I believe, on the show before, the biggest controversy 
in modern presidential history has nothing to do with Donald Trump. You know, to me, the Iran-Contra affair was far more scandalous than anything Donald Trump ever did. And certainly more scandalous than anything Bill Clinton ever did. And I'm not a fan of either of those guys. I don't like either one of them. If you ever want, you know, uh, to maybe get some some more right-wing views, we could talk Bill Clinton. But <laughs> um, definitely Iran-Contra was far worse and led to tons of cocaine coming in the country. And our government was fully aware of it. You know, and that's what ruined not only those communities, but those individual lives. Now, how do we fix that problem? I'm a firm believer in treating that woman's issue because I've seen people who have been on drugs who get off right. drugs. And that's when they treat it as a public health issue. Yeah. They were treating COVID the way we're treating all of these other issues. They're that addicts. is how you get people off of drugs. Now, there'll always be drugs. There will always be drugs. There will always be people who use and abuse some substance in order to escape their reality. Or sometimes, literally, I always use this example. Well, right. there are plenty of examples. You know, Brett Favre is a good example. You know, and, and one of the things that I always say to my students, and people get upset about it, but I'm like, that woman who came up to me and asked me for rock cocaine is no different than Brett Favre when he was using drugs. The only difference is one person is rich and the other person is poor. Yes. And it usually starts just like with George Floyd. Did George Floyd use drugs? Absolutely. But what did what came out of the trial? He suffered from excruciating back pain. Mm -hmm. And he started self-medicating. I think a lot of times it comes from some sort of physical or emotional pain that people use drugs and they'll always do that. It, it, there's no way of fully getting rid of the issue. What we can do is curb a lot of it and incarceration doesn't work, over-policing doesn't work. What does, what could work, I think is at the very least decriminalizing drugs, treating this issue as a public health issue rather than a criminal one. So it's where about the economic incentive to sell drugs. So you're talking about users, right? So and that's the big thing. And um and I think you just touched on it actually at the very tail end there. So at what level do we start the punitive actions then? So if we if we treat users as addicts and make them sort of a public health priority, you know, where do we assess okay, there does need to be some sort of punitive action in this chain of events, right? So dealers, right? I think that there's this tendency to like divide up dealers into like, you know, kingpins and small scale street dealers. I mean, like, where do we draw the line that we say, OK, you know what? There is a punishment entitled here. So when like, let me just stretch it out to like the most mainstream thing. When Purdue Pharma is like hawking opioids and then misrepresenting them and encouraging doctors to prescribe them against all needs for the patients. At what point do we hold the company accountable? Now, there are they are staring down many lawsuits. They've had to go to settlement on a bunch of different things. Um, they've been, there's been a lot of publicity around that company, but like, I think normal people think, yeah, they should be punished. They should be punished for getting Americans addicted to opioids. That's insane that that would happen. Yeah. Who do we, who do we punish and how far down do we go in the world of illegal narcotics? So <clears throat> first of all, one of the things that happened 
The reason that woman asked me at 14 when I actually looked 14. Right. Um, the reason that woman asked me for crack was number one, I was posted up on the block. So, you know, when, when you're standing outside on, on a wall, you know, it, she made an assumption. Right. But part of that was because they started using younger people to sell drugs um, in order, you know, to avoid punishment, you know, to avoid, you know, really harsh punishment that was coming down, particularly in New York, where you had like those old school Rockefeller drug laws that were trying to give people life in prison for selling drugs. Um, and we know what that has done. I, you know, on the right, all I hear is, oh, what, what's happened to black people? It's not racism. It's, it's, the, it's the destruction of the black family. What do you think tore black families apart? You think locking fathers up, you know, in mass, you think mm -hmm. that tore black families apart? You think deindustrializing where they didn't have jobs, didn't have good education, and then they go to the street in order to, as a financial, a viable financial opportunity? You think that might have destroyed some families? You know, uh, so I think um, they're, I, I think the number one thing should be we should punish drug traffickers, people, mm -hmm. you know, who bring drugs into our country or who sell drugs, uh, you know, I think the big pharma should be fined. And, you know, I, I really think that they should be held responsible. Yes. Um, I think one of the things that, like I said, with, with uh, Iran-Contra, one of the things that's most egregious and upsetting is that while you're getting these indictments and some of these Trump officials are going to be held responsible, no one from Iran-Contra ever was held responsible. They, they, they either got pardoned by George Bush, H.W. Uh, Bush, um, or they were just never indicted. And we knew that they literally turned a blind eye and this is where it goes back to my metaphor that I gave you guys before, where you want to stop a leak by putting a bucket down. That was literally, hey, let's arrest every kid on that block that's selling drugs. Let's give them harsh punishments when they're just looking to feed themselves and their families. And yeah, maybe give some new sneakers, you know, um, versus the people who knew that there was a leak going on and let it happen. And yeah. in some cases encouraged it at the very so, complicit in it. So we don't have to look, we don't have to look back though. I mean, you're, you're right to, to talk about the times that our government has failed us and allowed, especially uh, drugs to flow into the United States. You know, we have it going on now though. You know, we've got, we've got this crazy amount of fentanyl crossing into the United States and we have an administration that's totally asleep at the switch and trying to stop it. Um, and not, it does not, I think evident by its actions, not trying to stop it. <laughs> now you you and I have talked to immigration, so I could we could spare everybody a long conversation on it. But don't you don't you think the Biden administration should take much more seriously the the vast quantities of fentanyl in particular uh, and heroin, but mostly fentanyl that's now crossing into the United States and and already on track based on what we're seeing to kill upwards of one hundred thousand Americans this year. So if I'm not mistaken, most of that fentanyl comes from China. It was at one point, yeah, and no, I, it, it doesn't come from. And, and again, like, like I've always said, enforcement, we certainly, I'm, I'm all for enforcement. I'm all for law enforcement at the border. 
My question, or, or yeah. I think where we disagree, is, you know, what that looks like. And a lot of that is being smuggled in on trucks. It's not on somebody's back, you know, in a backpack on, you know, uh, you know, walking across the desert, across the border in Arizona. That's generally not how that fentanyl's coming in. It's coming in by the truckload and we need the technology to detect that. So to give, if we're going to fund border, uh, you know, CBP and, and right. the people that actually protect our borders, we need to give them the technology to do their job. So, so with a mirror under a truck. No, I, you know, after you had, you had mentioned that before and I wanted to, I wanted to figure out, you know, what is the truth about where the fentanyl is crossing the border after you and I talked on this show. And I asked um, Tom Homan last week, former Immigrations and oh, Customs yeah. Enforcement. <laughs> I know uh, you know, Tom, Tom, Tom is like, you know, he's very obviously very pro law enforcement, very, for, very pro getting the border under control, pro Trump, you know, so obviously take all those political stipulations in mind as you as you listen to his assessment. But I did ask him, that. I was like, what's what's the idea that, you know, what, some of the criticism I've heard when we talk about fentanyl, or at least the reaction I've heard is that, look, no need to you shouldn't be broadly concerned about random places on the border for drugs to cross. Most of the drugs actually cross through legal ports of entry to that. To that, what do you say? Again, I asked Tom this on my radio program uh, here in Washington, D.C. last week, and he said that um, the stuff that crosses the border at the at the legal ports of entry is the stuff they catch. So when you're actually uh, assessing the numbers here, he said that there are vast quantities of drugs that are crossing over the border. The problem is they can't they can't keep track of how much has actually crossed the border, whereas when it comes to legal ports of entry, it is much more likely that law enforcement will be able to interdict those drugs, thus leading to essentially the statistic that you're citing, that you will be able to get a better picture of, oh, of course, they catch most of the drugs crossing at legal ports of entry. That's where they do most of the sweeps and the surveys and, the, and, and actually try and assess whether or not there are drugs in the vehicle. Um, he says that's the explanation for that, and that what's happening now with the cartels coordinating vast quantities of humans from Central America coming across the border, that is freeing up the open sections of the border to be exploited by people who are not looking to turn themselves into border patrol. That would be people who are acting as mules for fentanyl and other drugs that are getting across the border. And it just, it just seems like, you know, that regardless of how it's getting across, we have a, a pretty tremendous problem on our hands. Yeah, no, I, I, I would agree. Uh, I think that um, one of the things that mules, drug mules have always done, uh, a strategy of drug mules is usually, or, or a strategy not of the mules, but of the traffickers, is what they'll do is they'll say, hey, Vince, you know, they know that you're, you know, a young guy with a family who's trying to, you know, pay bills or whatever and you're struggling in Central America or whatever, and they say, Vince, carry this amount, this small amount of fentanyl across the border, meet this guy, you know, in Dallas, Texas or wherever, and, you know, he'll pay you uh, $10,000. And I'm going to, you know, I'm going to pay you 10000 up front or maybe less than that, 2,000 up front just for taking the trip. 
you're, you know, poor guy in Central America, you're going to do that. The real truth, at least this is on, on planes. I don't know how it works at the border, so I would defer to somebody who knows more. But on planes, a lot of times they did that to distract law enforcement. They intend for you to get caught, you know, with that smaller amount as a way of distracting law enforcement for a bigger amount to come through. Sure. You know, um, so I, I don't know that I would agree. I mean, I, I think that, of course, our law enforcement and with the tools that they have and with the funding that they have at the border are doing the best that they possibly can. But let's not mistake the ingenuity of drug traffickers when they realize that this is a multi-billion dollar business. So one of the things that people were talking about is with the wall is you may not get the people, but one of the things that they were saying is that they can fly drones, mm -hmm. you know, with, with sizable quantities, you know, there, there's plenty of options that these drug traffickers will have in order to get drugs over the border. Um, even if you have, you know, this wall that's 50 feet high, which by the way, it's not so much a wall as a gate or, you know, I'm not even sure what to call it. Um, or as, was it steel slats <laughs> that the president, the vice, the, uh, the ex-president said, right. Um, that there was, you know, uh, there were many options for getting things over. And the way to stop that, of course, with drones is to have better technology of your own. You want to see, I want to show you something. You just brought up drones. I have to show you. Did you see the guys that were carrying those giant anti-drone guns at the Putin-Biden summit in Geneva? You familiar with this? No, no. All right, check this out. See if you can see this real quick. Look, look at these guys. Let me see. Check Whoa. out the size of that weapon that that guy's holding. That oh. That's meant to disable drones. And then that woman right there also has like some sort of anti-drone gun right there. Isn't that cr incredible? I never, never saw weaponry like this. And so when the guys, when this picture started getting posted, it's like, wow, everyone's really up armored for this, um, for this summit between Putin and Biden. Uh, you go and you find out the, the people did some internet sleuthing and people who know are in this field of, of uh, anti-drone technology. They said, yeah, those guns are meant to take down drones. I think one of them is a, is like a net gun of some kind. The other is just meant to jam the actual technology. Uh, but apparently tech like that exists. I just had to show you that though, because those are the yeah. coolest looking guns I think I've ever seen. Yeah, no, that's <laughs> space age you know, <laughs> kind of stuff there. Yeah. And, and that's the kind of stuff that I think we, we need to, you know, make pretty commonplace um, is, you know, more technology that helps them detect, you know, people and treat them in a humane way. And also drug traffickers, we need to stop them in the best way possible. Um, and they've got a lot of ingenuity. I mean, how many years and how much, you know, how many drugs were trafficked through those tunnels, through El Chapo's tunnels right? You know, that he had dug? Because he outthought a lot of, you know, because remember the first thing that was, was stated by the Trump uh, administration was we're going to build a wall, you know, and then people were like, you don't know that there are tunnels <laughs> like they built tunnels 
under that. And then that's when uh, Trump changed it. He said, we're going to build a wall that's 100 feet high and 50 feet deep and, you know, and all that. And the kind of wall that it would take to, to build that was, I mean, it would have been ridiculous. And there's certain parts of the terrain where it just would not have worked. Um, but I think, you know, in 2021 and beyond, we should be looking to technology like like what you saw there. I think that that makes perfect sense in order to stop these problems. Yeah, no, that was crazy. That was wild. The cool thing about a wall is that it's hard to reverse. It's like, as a, as a policy matter, like look at the Biden administration, the Trump administration, they each have different policies on immigration. If you could actually lay down a wall, a physical barrier, that's one of those things. It's like a lot harder to actually take away, which is why I think, you know, uh, Trump wanted to get it done. And um, it would have been better because then Biden couldn't like reverse a wall that's already assembled. Now, the wall that wasn't assembled, all that stuff is just like rusting now. It's just like sitting out in fields. They're not using it. Um but I, you know, walls, walls, walls have their effectiveness. But I agree with you. I think it should be, um, sort of like a, a multi. I don't know how, what the word is for it, but a diverse approach to actually how you secure the border. Because the end game should be to have a a, a sealed, tight border, with the exception of anywhere we allow people to traverse legally, and um, that would make the most sense as a system. But to, as of as of right now, we don't. We just don't have that. We just have. We have a lot of chaos. And I, I worry, I think, first and foremost about those drugs. I mean, it is one thing the the people coming in and out, the impact of that, whatever associated crime comes with that, that those all matter. But I think first and foremost, just the idea that we have an ongoing epidemic in the United States of of um, opioid deaths and the fact that they're virtually guaranteed to get worse by virtue of the state of our border right now is a sign that we need to get control. And um take it seriously no i I agree um i I do think this administration the previous administration and the administration before that um have all taken it seriously there's no question about it uh they just have different ideas of how to do it and we can debate the the effectiveness of, of all of those administrations and there's probably some good things we could take from all of them um I, I will have to search for the ones from the Trump administration, but I'm sure they're there. And I, and I think that, um, you know, we need to uh, look at many different options for getting the, the border under control. The vast majority of the people who cross the border, as we've stated, are looking for jobs. They're not looking to traffic drugs. They don't have drugs on them. They're not doing any of that kind of illegal activity. Um, they're looking for economic opportunity and to escape uh, crime and poverty. Um, so I think that, you know, that's that's that that's, you know, an important thing to state and to put out there. Yeah, I and meanwhile, I, you know, my view is that the Trump administration did put a lot of policies in place that uh, should still be here today, but aren't uh, that were reversed everything from the, the pandemic restrictions and especially the remain in Mexico um, uh, program to discourage further migration into the United States, to give people a clear sign, like, look, if you want to make your asylum claim, you're going to have to make it on the border because you're not going to be allowed to stay in the United States. That created a clear disincentive for people to do that. And that was thanks to the cooperation of the Mexican government that we were able to secure that. Um, but that's all fallen by the wayside. And I honestly, I'm, I'm tremendously disappointed in the Biden administration because I, I don't think that they really have... Um, 
there's no fire in the belly to actually fix it. I think they're basically content with the state of the border and that what little they talk about it or the attempts they make to talk about it are to, I think, give the public an impression they actually care, but just, I don't, I, I just really don't think they do. I mean, I think like, you know, Kamala Harris, when she went down to Central America and Guatemala, for her to say, don't come to the border, she got criticized by, you know, like AOC and others for that. But she said, don't come to the border. And then she was asked about that by Lester Holt in that NBC interview. He said, wait, he's like, how can you say don't come to the border when such a large percentage of the people who do are actually allowed into the United States? You know, isn't, doesn't that undermine your message? And she just did not have a good answer to that because I don't think there is a good one. Yeah, I'm, I, you know, um, I think there are things about the, the Biden administration that they need to have a, a clear, consistent message, whatever it is. I, I think that there are elements of their message that, you know, are sending mixed messages. And, and I think that, um, you know, the white lines in the middle of the road are the worst place to drive. And I think, you know, as kind of a centrist and someone who's trying to unite uh, every wing of the Democratic Party, um, Joe Biden is trying to be tough, uh, but he's also trying to uh, do things differently than the last administration, which was in right. Maine. And I, and I think that he is, you know, he's, he's trying to kind of, you know, navigate that. And I think in some ways he's done a decent job. I believe in terms of where, again, I'll go back to it, <clears throat> because I didn't know we were going to talk immigration today. But one of the things I will say is that, you know, you don't stop a leak at, you know, where the damage is. You start, you start, uh, excuse me, you stop a leak at the source. Mm -hmm. And I think one of the things and the approaches that needs to be taken is, uh, and, and the Trump administration kind of did this in other, in other settings, not necessarily at our with regard to immigration, um, but they try to use this carrots and sticks approach, for example, to get, you know, the peace, you know, in the Middle East and to get people to recognize Israel and all right. that. It's like, hey, we're going to help you where you are, you know, and even when they tried to approach the, uh, the Palestinians, it was, we're going to try and help you where you are, you know what I mean? so that you don't have to go into Israel and you don't have to deal with some of these issues. Um, it didn't work, but, you know, for the most part. Yeah. But at the same time, I, I think that that is a, a worthwhile approach in a lot of cases. I'm not advocating for their policy. So people on the left, if <laughs> anybody, I don't think there's anybody on the left watching, but if they are, uh, I'm not advocating for the policy. What I am saying is that a carrot and, carrots and sticks approach a lot of times it makes sense. No question. You no. need leverage. You need leverage for sure. Uh, let's uh, you know, let's reconvene later this week. We'll find out what Joe Biden's doing on Wednesday as he says he wants to confront violent crime. Uh, apparently, we expect some statement from him on Wednesday. So I'm sure you and I will have a lot to talk about this week as it develops. In the meantime, if you like Vincent Jason Save the Nation, please make sure to like and subscribe uh, anywhere you can find the podcast, in particular on YouTube on the Daily Callers YouTube channel. And uh, please leave comments. We like to read them. Jason is obsessed with them. He's a big fan <laughs> of the comments. Uh, thanks, thanks so much, as always, for, for tuning into this edition of Vincent Chasen, Save the Nation.